preach this morning. <laughs> if you'll open your copy of Scripture to Matthew chapter 9, as you know, we've been working our way through uh, the gospel according to Matthew. And we land on verse 27 uh, this morning. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. I'm using as a subject for these verses this morning, blind men who could see. Doctors, lawyers, and other professionals display their credentials to certify that they are qualified to engage in the service they're providing. And to let us know that they are who they claim to be. Jesus has credentials too. His credentials are the miracles he performed, verifying that he is indeed the Messiah, that he indeed is the Christ. In particular, opening blind eyes is one of the lines of evidence of his claim to Messiahship. Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 5 says that the eyes of the blind will be opened and that will occur in a future day, in the future age, during the millennial kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' ministry during his first advent provided a foretaste of his coming kingdom. He provided a preview of what his kingdom, when he comes back the second time, will be like in terms of how people will live and the afflictions and all of those things that plague us now, how that will be addressed. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 3 through 5, Jesus answers the question about what he was doing to verify the fact that he indeed is the Christ, our Messiah. John the Baptist, you recall, the forerunner of our Lord, was imprisoned at this time. Any questions arose in his mind concerning his situation and what was going on. And so he sent some of his disciples to Jesus uh, to inquire of him about, is he the one we're to look for, the expected one, or are we to look for another? Verse 3 of Matthew 11, he said to him, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. Let me give you some evidence that I am the one that you should have been expecting because I'm here. I am him. I am here. Here he says in verse 5, the blind receive sight. And the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Here is the evidence. Jesus lays out that indeed he is Messiah. You'll notice in verse 5 at the beginning of it, it says the blind 
receive sight. Blind receive sight. That really is a quote from Isaiah chapter 35 verse 5. And what that means is Jesus fulfilled that text during his first coming. But it's going to fulfill it completely when he returns the second time and he inaugurates and leads his millennial or a thousand year kingdom. Now what we have here in our text this morning, you can go back there uh, to our text from which we're speaking. Matthew presents the miracle of healing of the blind men to demonstrate Jesus' legitimate claim to being Israel's Messiah. Here's the record of it. This is the claim that Jesus makes, I am Messiah. We just saw that, and, and this is a presentation of it from the pen of Matthew. We'll call the first heading, The Cry. As Jesus went on from there. Let's stop there for a moment. Jesus went on from Jairus' house where he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He had also healed a woman prior to that who suffered a hemorrhage for 12 long years. You recall she couldn't be healed. Doctors couldn't help her. Luke says there's no help available, possible. Only Jesus could heal her. You'll notice something here. After the comma in verse 27, two blind men followed him. These men uh, without sight were somehow following Jesus. And let me just take a moment and explain that blindness was a common and pervasive problem in Israel during Jesus' time on earth. A number of reasons are given for this malady. Unsanitary conditions. Infectious organisms, blowing sand, accident, war, malnutrition, and even babies sometimes as they were being born, going through the birth canal, the mother had gonorrhea and the child would be blinded because of that. All these things, along with excessive heat, combined to make blindness a constant danger in Israel. Now, the text is silent as to how these two men became blind, and that's okay because it really doesn't matter. The fact is that they were blind. But we do know that they desired to be healed from their affliction. And you'll notice something. They were crying out, verse 27. It renders a, a verb in the original, which portrays the men as repeatedly crying out. In fact, they were screaming. And that word screaming could be used here legitimately as the way to translate it, screaming. Spurgeon. Yeah, I quote him a lot, don't I? It's okay. He was good. <laughs> insight. Spurgeon, in his sermon on this text, said, quote, Now, crying implies earnest, energetic, pathetic, imploring, pleading, and beseeching. Spurgeon goes on to say, imagine yourselves in such a case. How eager you would be for the blessed light if for years you had been compelled to abide in what Milton called the ever-during dark. 
In other words, you would cry out to the top of your lungs if you knew that Jesus could heal you and you wanted his attention. And when the Spurgeon quotes Milton, he's talking about John Milton, the poet, you recall, um, the, the poet who wrote Paradise Lost, and he became blind in his, later in his life. So we can see here the loud, passionate, intense crying out was designed, as I mentioned a moment ago, to get Jesus' attention amidst a noisy crowd that followed our Lord. Think about it. The massive people were always around the Lord Jesus, always following him. And we can understand in this particular case, the notable miracle or miracles had been done by him respect to the hemorrhaging woman. And the resurrected girl, the crowd, the throng, was around our Lord. In fact, uh, the crowds typically followed him. They knew his reputation. You you notice him, Jesus rarely had any privacy. When he went in the house, somebody was there coming to the house. He left the house, somebody was following him. He was in demand. So these blind men, they have to get his attention. Somehow, some way, they're following him. We don't know how they're doing it, but they're keeping up with him. Now you'll notice something in the bottom of the verse. The blind men yelled their desire, have mercy on us, son of David. Son of David. This is a messianic title, one of the most common titles for the promised deliverer. The blind men knew who Jesus was. They had the right knowledge. They could see what many in Israel refused to see. That's why I entitled this little message, Blind Men Who Could See. Others refused the truth about Jesus, that he is Messiah. Or the Christ. They knew that since he was Messiah. He could heal them. They knew that they could be delivered from their blindness. They knew that that's what Messiah would do. When he came. They were right about his identity. As Israel's Messiah. He indeed was the son of David. Jesus was a descendant of David. In fact the gospel of Matthew opens with the reality of this, Matthew chapter 1, 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's his genealogy. He's a descendant of David. He was in the royal line of succession to the throne of Israel. The title, son of David, further is understood in light of the Davidic covenant made with David by God, as recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 14, the A portion in verse 16. Psalm 89 also addresses that reality. But in the covenant, in its original iteration, God promised David a descendant who would establish David's kingdom forever. That ultimate descendant is none other than Messiah. 
at Christmas time, a son is given, a son is born. You know, we read that Isaiah chapter 9, 6 and 7. The government shall be upon his shoulder and the increase of his government there shall be no end. That's a reference to the Messiah. He would be the one who would sit on the throne of David. Be the one who would rule. Son of David. The ultimate descendant. Gabriel affirmed to Mary the same thing. In Luke chapter 1, it's really clear when he came and spoke to the virgin and announced this remarkable truth. It says he will be great, speaking about Jesus, and will be called the son of the most high, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. See, the dots are connected. Gabriel let Mary know that Jesus would be the rightful heir to David's throne. His legal father is Joseph. Therefore, he had the right to the throne. And he'll rule over the house of Jacob forever. And that is coming. The New Testament repeatedly declares that Jesus is the promised deliverer of God's people. And that he will establish his eternal kingdom. That he is of the lineage of David. You can't escape it. Testament, as I mentioned, affirms it. Eventually, in the Wednesday nights, we're going to get to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to give you a preview. Acts chapter 2. You can see it. Peter is preaching. And he asserts the reality of what I just said. Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Says... Here, beginning that verse, Acts 2, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet, David that is, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke that he was neither abandoned to Hades, that's the grave, nor did his flesh suffer decay. The resurrected Christ, Christ had to be resurrected for a number of reasons. One of them, he had to sit on David's throne. You rule over the house of David forever. Eternal kingdom. You can just go through the New Testament, Romans chapter 1, verse 3, Revelation chapter 5, Verse 5, you see that reality of who Jesus is. He's the son of David. He is Messiah. By the way, when you hear some Yehu talk about he's Messiah, just know he's a liar. There's only one Messiah. And he was born of the Virgin Mary and, and he was, grew up in Nazareth. He was buried, he was raised from the dead. That is the only Messiah. Anybody else who makes claims this Messiah is a liar. Amen. Uh, even Jesus' enemies knew he was Messiah. 
You say, they did? Yes. The Pharisees, it's perennial nemesis, they understood this. Matthew chapter 22, I want you to see it just uh, briefly here. No, these guys were always coming to Jesus, asking him questions, trying to trip him up. Which always turned out to be to their disadvantage. I figured if I asked Jesus one question trying to trick trick him and trip him up and he soundly defeated me, I wouldn't be asking any more questions. Matthew chapter 22, verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ, our Messiah, the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Aha, they got it right, right? They knew Messiah was the son of David. And he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. He's the Lord. He's the son of God and son of David. The Pharisees knew son of David. They just didn't want to acknowledge that Jesus is the son of David. Go back with me then, if you will, to Matthew chapter 9. So the blind men, they knew that Jesus was the son of David. They knew that he was the Christ or the Messiah. And to call him son of David was to proclaim Jesus as Messiah. Then let's look now at the request. Bottom of verse 27. Have mercy on us. What is mercy? It's God's deep compassion for people. This mercy cannot be merited. We have no right to it. Thomas Watson says, mercy is not the fruit of our goodness, but the fruit of God's goodness. You can't earn mercy. You can't deserve mercy. God sovereignly gives mercy to people. That's why these men said, have mercy on us. They didn't come to Jesus saying, we deserve this. They just have mercy on us. Salvation, too, is an expression of God's mercy to undeserving sinners. Uh, we weren't saved by good deeds, but by his mercy. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Divine mercy. That's the cry. Son of David, have mercy on us. The next thing is uh, the cure. That's our next heading. Verse 28. When he entered the house, they stopped. You notice something between verse 27 and verse 28. Jesus didn't say a word to him. He didn't say anything. He didn't even respond to him. He did not at all, as they incessantly cried, uh, have mercy on us, son of David. He said nothing. He just kept going on his way, entered the house, probably Peter's house. And the blind men came up to him. Somehow, some way, they made their way to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Now, let me let you know, and I think you know this, Jesus didn't ask this question uh, seeking information. He didn't need to know the state of their heart. He didn't need to know whether they believed him or not. There's not that at all. It can't be because we know that the Bible teaches us in John chapter 2, verse 25, that Jesus knows what's in man. He doesn't need anybody to testify about us. He knows us thoroughly. So this question was not designed to draw out of them information for his sake. The question was designed to draw out a public confession of faith. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Do you have personal faith in me that I can accomplish what you're requesting? And their answer is, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. They affirmed their belief that he could and their firm belief that he's divine Messiah and then Jesus says he touched their eyes saying it shall be done to you according to your faith since you believe your request is granted about that I think this could be an analogy for spiritual sight God has opened the blinded eyes of men men cannot see the gospel of the glory of Christ unless God opens their eyes when God saved Paul on the road to Damascus God told him Christ told him he would open blinded eyes and turn men from Satan and from darkness. He did that by the gospel. Satan seeks to blind the minds of men. He does not want them to see the truth. And in salvation only, God can open the eyes. The reason you believe the gospel is because God opened your eyes. You used to be blind too. You could see physically, but you were blind spiritually until you heard the gospel and God opened your eyes. You believed the gospel. You could see clearly who Christ is and you came to faith in him. That's why you sing. Um, I was blind, but now I see. As all Christians are. That's the reality. So Jesus opened their eyes. That's what it says in verse 30. Verse 30. And their eyes were opened. They could see. So we've seen the cry. We've seen the cure. That's accomplished now. The command. The command. And Jesus sternly warned them. See that no one knows about this. Uh, I know you're thinking. What? Uh, how can it be? How could people not know about this miraculous healing from blindness from Jesus? Those who knew the men would immediately recognize their newly found sighted condition. They'd say, oh, Ben, you can see. Bartholomew, you can see. I don't know those guys' names. I'm just using them. You understand. Jesus couldn't have meant simply keeping their healing private. That's impossible. In fact, his miracles were intended to show that he was indeed the divine Messiah, the son of David. But why the stern command? Why does he tell them that 
what it says here. See that no one knows about this. Let me attempt to explain. Here's what the deal was. There was this misperception of who Messiah was to be there in Israel. Many in Israel understood that Jesus' miracles, they didn't understand they were intended to establish the fact of his Messiahship. It's the right purpose. Remember, Jesus fed the 5,000. And after that feeding, I mean, after all, you got a free meal. And then you think, boy, this is great. We just follow Jesus around. He's going to miraculously feed us. Let's do that. And so they were after him. And Jesus chided them saying, listen, you are only seeking me for the food. For the material benefit. Materialism was their motivation in following him. Not spiritual salvation. Also in John chapter 6, verse 15, they wanted to make him king. Not only were they looking for material benefit, they were looking for political benefit. They wanted a political Messiah to overthrow the Romans. They weren't looking for spiritual deliverance from their sins. They wanted a temporal deliverance from their oppressors. Sadly, those kind of desires are alive today. Let me put it like this. People want to use Jesus today as they did back in that day. And they use him today as a mascot for their agendas, which are not his agendas. They misinterpret Jesus. I see this when I listen to discourse on both sides of the political spectrum. People want to use Jesus for their own purposes. Some have said he is a political revolutionary. Wrong. Others say he's a social movement leader. Wrong. When Jesus came here, he came to die for sinners. He didn't come here to take sides. He came here to take over. And I don't think people get that. He is not an avatar for people's ideas and goals and plans. No, don't stick Jesus' name on your thing and think he's affirming it and endorsing it. No, 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 no. You better find out what Jesus says in the word of God and stick your name with him. Follow him. He is the son of David. He is Messiah who will accomplish what God the Father planned. He didn't come here to tinker with social problems or change political structures. If he'd wanted to do that, he could have done that when he was here the first time. Because he sure enough had the power, right? He came to die for sinners. And see, the problem with man is his sin. That's the root. All the other stuff that we see are the fruit. That's why I have the problems we have. Jesus doesn't do superficial work. He goes deep down in and changes the heart. And I'm going to tell you what he's going to do when he comes back. 
he is going to establish his kingdom. And when he establishes his kingdom, as he's doing that, he's going to root out all the evildoers. The angel's going to take them. The Bible says, we'll get to Matthew eventually, and it'll say that. He's going to root all of those people out, and he's going to establish his kingdom from the get-go. Everybody in the earthly kingdom over his, under his rule, over the house of Jacob and over the whole world, will be righteous. Because of his supernatural power in the new covenant to change men's hearts. I'm going to say it again. Jesus did not come to take sides. He came to take over. He is presently calling people out of the world for himself. He is building his church. And he's going to keep doing that until he comes back at the rapture to take his church out of the world. And what our job is, we're to be telling people about what he is doing. Giving them the gospel. The saving gospel. Telling them about the kingdom of God. That's our task. That's our responsibility. To do. I hope you agree with that. Because if you do, you agree with the Bible and what Jesus came to do. So Jesus says here, because of the misinterpretation and the misapplication, see that no one knows. He didn't want to stir up premature opposition. He didn't want his mission made more difficult by people who were spreading the fervor for a messianic, a political Messiah rather than a Messiah that saves sinners. Well, what do you think these guys did? Verse 31. They were disobedient. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all the land. They should have obeyed him. But I guess we can understand. I mean, you've been blind and he opens your eyes. It's hard to keep that to yourself. The reality is we're to obey the Lord regardless, right? So they disobeyed him out of grateful heart. But it's still wrong what they did. Well, I don't know about you. But I'm glad the Lord opened my blinded eyes. Because all of us were born blind. And then one day, he gave us our sight. And now we can see Jesus for who he is and serve him. That is the biggest blessing ever, right? Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for spiritual sight. Thank you that you, in your mercy, you saw our desperate condition. You saw our spiritual blindness. And you opened our blinded eyes. We behold your glory. We behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. We see him in all his redemptive power and mercy and grace. Now, with eyes open to see, we believe the word of God and we rejoice in it. We follow uh, the living incarnate word. And we serve you and him by the power of the Holy Spirit.
Help us to faithfully live for Christ, know his mind through his word, and share the good news of the gospel with those who need to hear it, who are in desperate need for the salvation that only he can give to them. We pray for those in this room this morning who are outside salvation, who have not come to him as Savior and Lord. Open their eyes. They may embrace him, believe on him, and experience salvation. We pray you do these things for not only for their good, temporally and especially eternally, but that your name may be praised by them and others from this time forward and forevermore. And we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.